Hi, I'm Wendy Zuckerman, and you're listening to Science Versus from Gimlet. Today on the show, the hunt for one of the biggest killers of the 20th century. It's almost inconceivable how bad it was. There are reports of people turning blue and getting this sort of like weird um, death-looking face because they weren't getting enough oxygen. That's producer Rose Rimler, and we're talking about the 1918 flu. It's estimated that it killed as many as 100 million people worldwide. And while a lot of us have heard quite a lot about this flu, as Rose started researching it, one thing that really surprised her was how little science knew about what was killing people at the time. They knew about flus. They had the word influenza. But they didn't know exactly what a virus was because they didn't have microscopes that could see anything that small. I just think about how much comfort I get from the fact that we know certain things about the coronavirus. Like, we know how it enters the body, how it can attack the lungs. We know it's a coronavirus. I don't know. I get comfort from that. And so this idea that back then there was this invisible thing just sweeping through cities and killing all these people, I feel like is like ter- is terrifying to think about. I agree. That would make the pandemic even scarier. It would take it from like global public health emergency, you know, scary to like Stephen King novel level of scary. This like invisible supernatural beast haunting us. That's what I imagine it, it must have felt like in 1918. And this weird invisible beast, it would stay invisible to science for decades. Because even after we learned what a virus was, it was too late. Yeah, because the way that you can start to study a virus is you take it from someone who's infected with it. And by the time we knew what viruses were, there was no one around who was infected with this flu anymore. They'd either recovered or they died. Oh. So there was really no way for science to know what had killed all these people? No, not really. And for a long time, scientists just sort of resigned themselves to the flu itself as lost to history. And that was the prevailing thought for decades. And so without knowing what actually killed these people, science couldn't answer really basic questions about this pandemic. Like, why was it so deadly? Could this virus come back and kill us all again? And solving this scientific riddle, it would take almost 100 years, an unlikely hero, and an adventure to the edge of the world and back again. And it starts in the most unlikely place. Basically... Next door to Rose. Yeah, so the scrappy hero of our story is Johan Holten. And I found out he's actually my neighbor. He lives just a few miles down the road from where I'm staying here with my dad in California. Amazing. So uh, so it's an amazing coincidence. I looked him up in the phone book. I called his house. His wife answered. She said, come on over. You can, you can interview him. Mask on. Yeah, it's masked up. Six feet apart. Sunny on the hands. Yep. Yeah. Okay, Johan, your visitor is here. So, Rose, this is Johan. It's so nice to meet you. Yeah, he nice. is. Nice meeting you. Do you mind if I call you Johan? I'm delighted. 
So what does he look like? He is, uh, he has white hair. Of course, he's retired. Uh, he's uh, 95. Used to be an athlete. And apparently he was still uh, hiking around the hills here up until he was 93. Life goals. He's Swedish and still has a little bit of an accent. Don't, don't get old, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so in about 1950, when Johan's in his mid-20s, he decided to leave Sweden for the U.S. I came over from Sweden as a graduate student. He went to the University of Iowa. And one day, he and his buddies in Iowa are gathered around, and they're talking about how it's still kind of nuts that science doesn't know what exactly the 1918 flu was. And some people are saying, it's a shame. There's no way we can find it. But in this conversation, there just happens to be a visiting professor who says, you know, it's possible that there is a live sample of this virus still left somewhere on Earth. So he said, someone actually should go up to Alaska, the frozen north, to find frozen bodies who died in 1918 and they were buried in the permafrost. They may still be frozen. The idea here is that in the permafrost, people don't decompose. Their lungs would still be intact. And if they had died from the flu then the virus might still be alive inside their lungs, kind of like in a suspended animation. Oh, so if we can find people who died from the flu but haven't completely rotted, like still have preserved lungs, then we might be able to find the virus still in their lungs and science could take it and study it. Yeah, exactly. That is wild. But this, like, this visiting professor, he just throws out this idea into the wind. He doesn't think anyone's actually going to do it, right? And that's, that's what it sounds like. He didn't really say, like, this must happen. He was just like, you know, what well, might work. <laughs> but little did he know who was listening. Johan was kind of the perfect person to overhear that comment because Johan loves a good adventure. And in fact, he had just come back from a trip to Alaska where he had explored and made a lot of connections. Well, it was a tremendous adventure. And so this day in Iowa, he's like, oh, I could actually do that. I could go back to Alaska and I could find this virus there. And I could help science understand what it was and why it was so deadly. Okay, so he gets it in his head that he's going to go on this wild goose chase, effectively. Um, what does he do next? So he flies up to Alaska, and he gets on, you know, progressively smaller and smaller airplanes to go to really small towns that aren't near major cities, mostly. And he scouts around to see if people buried there would be buried in land that was still frozen. And eventually, he ends up in a place called Brevig Mission, which is a really small town right on the edge of the Bering Sea. And that's what I grew up in with the ocean in front of me right there <laughs> and um, listening to the waves during the summer and fall up until it freezes. This is Annie Conger. She's a retired school teacher and a member of the native village of Brevig Mission. It's a place that can get so cold that icicles form on your eyelashes. Ooh. And the land there is mostly tundra, so like low grasses and shrubs. And you can see around for miles. There's so much to see. It's a beautiful country. So back in 1918, the flu made it up to Alaska. And when it did, it really devastated a lot of the small towns there. 
and Brevig Mission was one of them. Uh, we lost our great-grandparents. Annie grew up hearing stories about what happened there from people who survived it. One thing that would happen was people would get these really high fevers. And the fever was unbearable. They would run out of their houses and, and roll around in the snow to cool off. And they died really quickly. Once it hit, it hit, and, and they were gone the next day. People who survived it did not want to talk about it. It was just something horrible. But you could see in their eyes how much it affected them because it was just horrendous to see, you know, your your family, your community dying one after the other during that time. When Johan was in Brevik, he also spoke to one woman who had survived it. She'd been there. She saw it, but 90% of the villagers died. She was, her family died. She was telling the story, but he was a little, she was a little kid then. This is a, a terrible calamity. Almost all the adults died and some children. And it happened so fast that all these people were buried together, about 72 in total. No coffins, they're just placed in a mass grave in the frozen ground. And this grave is still there. It's basically a pit in the grassy tundra right along the water. It's marked with a big cross. And that mass grave was actually why Johann was in Brevig in 1951. He thought the bodies buried there might be his best shot at finding flu victims, victims that still had the virus in their lungs. One of the first things he does is he goes to the community elders and he asks, is this okay if I dig up this mass grave for science? And what he says is that he's ultimately hoping to find a vaccine or some way to stop the virus from ever coming back. And so the community says, okay, you can dig up the grave. So here it is. Yes, 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 please. And I started out. So what did he do? He just starts digging? Pretty much. He had some tools with him, but nothing fancy. A spade. And the pickaxe. Yeah, this is it. And this was really hard to work with because the ground was frozen. So he had to make campfires out of driftwood to melt the earth bit by bit. So I just started out digging um, in the grave, and a couple of, about two feet down, there was a little girl. A little girl? A little girl. It's 12 years old or something. There, in the permafrost, he found the body of a girl, and she was pretty much perfectly preserved. Looking in good shape. Just like... She had died yesterday. Oh, my God. She'd actually died 30 years prior, but she still had her hair and braids. The ribbons were still there. Her dress was still intact. Oh, yeah, I mean, look at this. And that was really amazing. I remember, never forget. Why wasn't he horrified? Well, I think he was. I think there were two things going on. One is just how incredibly sad it was. And I do think Johan felt that, and he still feels it today when he looks back on it. But on the other side, he realizes that this whole 
grave is full of people who are well-preserved, and that means that they may still have the virus in them, sort of in a suspended animation, which is what he was hoping to find. Oh, right, because if he had, if if the bodies hadn't have been well-preserved and there had been signs that they were rotting or that this wasn't in a permafrost, this all would have been for nothing. Exactly. I was just astonished with it. Finding this and realizing what it meant that here I have a gold mine of information about the disease. Fantastic. I remember it so clearly. So he calls some colleagues who are waiting in Fairbanks and they come out to help him. And altogether they dig a little bit more. And so they end up uncovering a few more bodies. And then they open up these bodies' chests. And they take some pieces from their lungs. So they crack open these corpses and then scoop up a sample of their lungs. Yeah. And then they cover everyone back up. They go and say thanks to the community and they're ready to go back to Iowa. But there's a problem. They have to keep these samples really cold, of course. That was like the whole point, that the lungs were cold for many years and never decomposed. But it's going to take a little while to get back to Iowa, so they have to keep them cold. And they had thought of this ahead of time. They brought thermoses and they brought dry ice, but they didn't bring enough dry ice. And by the time they needed it, it was all gone. My God, here's the end of our, our experiment. So what do they do? So the, Johan thought, it's over. And then he has an idea which is that maybe the answer lies in fire extinguishers. What? So fire extinguishers, at least certain types, when you squeeze the lever, it makes a big cold cloud. That's what puts out the fire. And Johan's like, wait, that could be the answer. So I could put a nozzle from the fire extinguisher right in and blast it. So when they get to Anchorage... We went from hardware store to hardware store to hardware store to fire departments that rounded up all the carbon dioxide fire extinguishers that existed in that place. You bought all of Anchorage's? All of them, yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Basically, every time they get off the plane, because they have to get off frequently to refuel or to change planes, um, Johan takes the fire extinguisher, takes the, like, thermos where he's got these samples in, and... Squeeze the handle and a big woof comes up. Big noise and everybody's nearby wondering what it was. Oh my gosh, does this work? Well, so they get back to Iowa. He gets back to campus. And this is where the the story goes from like this adventuring in the field to kind of adventuring in the lab. So now he's got sort of classic grad student drudgery work, which is he has to grow the virus out. So what he was hoping was that the virus was alive, but sort of in a suspended state, and he could kind of wake it up. So one way he does that is taking the human tissue that he's collected, he grinds it up, and then he injects it into animals to see if they get sick. Injected it into live animals and guinea pigs and rabbits every day, day after day, week after week. Johan tried over and over again, and he ended up using all the human tissue that he had brought back. But the lab animals never got sick, which meant... The virus that I was looking for was dead. And it was all for nothing. 
our story can't end there. This is just halftime. To hear the rest of Johan's adventure, you've got to head over to our main feed. Just search for Science Versus, that's Science VS, and click on our episode, Hunting an Invisible Killer. That's Hunting an Invisible Killer. How could you not do it? I'm Wendy Zuckerman. I'll fact you next time. <laughs>